Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCleskey. American politics appears to be becoming increasingly rancorous, factionalized, and even violent. Civility may seem inadequate as a resource for dealing with our country's problems, but perhaps that's simply because we misunderstand what civility means. Joining us today is Joseph Capizzi, who wrote a nice article in Providence Magazine on civility following the recent riots at the U.S. Capitol. Dr. Capizzi is a professor of moral theology and ethics at the, and the executive director of the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. He teaches in the areas of social and political theology with special interests in issues and peace and war, citizenship, political authority, and Augustinian theology. Dr. Capizzi, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Aaron and uh, Mary, uh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you guys. You argue in this in your article, this recent article, that civility has come under attack because it's seen as inadequate to the task of politics. Can you just talk um, about what is going on here? Why it's it's one thing for civility to kind of for for our politics to devolve into incivility, but it's another thing for some of these explicit denunciations of of civility to be coming out. Why is this happening? What's going on here? Yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. Uh, it's a good place to begin just thinking about why all of a sudden we're talking about um, issues of civility. One of one of the things I think that, th- think that is animating this is the sense among some uh, who are um, trying to advocate for causes they believe in that we're in a we're in a deep struggle. Right. And you even see sometimes the language of war and from this perspective, uh, this struggle or this conflict or even this war requires um, instruments appropriate to conflict and war. And it, civility, uh, according to these uh, thinkers, is, is weak. It's just simply too weak. It's an inapt instrument, an in, inapt weapon, really, um, for the, 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 the stakes that are involved in this conflict. So we need to fight fire with fire, right? We need to employ the kinds of weaponry that um, those on the other side are engaged in. And when, when they hear somebody call for civility, they think that's a call for an employment of weak instruments and perhaps also presupposes a sense that the, the stakes don't really matter, right? That we're not really in the kind of mortal conflict um, with an opposition. It seems to me that one issue then that's going on here is that is about, it has to do with the meaning of civility itself. Um, right. Partly, you're talking about there. There's certain there are certain ends of politics or certain goals that they there. Right. It's too. It's so important we achieve those goals. We can't get all hung up on how we achieve those goals. Right. So that's partly what's going on. And it, but then, I, but then civility itself. Um, you say that it's seen often as simply being nice, um, and that's not. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about civility. And I really think that that's what most people. When they hear in their mind, in their minds, they're thinking, "Oh, it just means we have to be kind of prim and proper, or something." And that that's, and that, and that that doesn't make any sense. But that's not what you mean. Okay, so maybe give us, you know, tell us what is civility? What does it actually mean to be civil? Yeah, sure. Right, right. So it, it's it's often dismissed as being nice, and nice is a word that nobody likes, right? Nice is the word that you use when you're not really sure what to say about somebody. What do you think about this or that person? You know, she's nice, he's nice. You know, almost always somebody will follow that up with, 
okay, so what do you really mean, right? Like, you know, you, you've got nothing good to say about her or him. Um, give me, give me the real thing now. Um, civility is being nice to other people, but the, but the, but, but underlying that, right, is really the root of the term, which, as I point out in the article, is about the connection of this virtue to being a member of a community, right? Civility suggests being a citizen, um, and this is something that the, you know, older understandings of the term really possess, right? This notion that I'm a member of a community and I, and I engage other members of my community with the virtues associated with fellow membership, with being citizens of a community which we both care about, whose good we both care about. So on the one hand, it does entail something like being nice. I have to live with this person, right? This is a person with whom I am striving right, to have a peaceful existence, even though we may deeply disagree about things, either the good of the community or the means for achieving that good. But nonetheless, we have to coexist, right? So civility has some of that meaning that we retained in our culture, which is a kind of niceness, right, a kind of playing fair, right, treating each other in good faith, um, trying to understand the other person, but it has a much deeper sense of drawing from the sense that we are members of a shared community, right? And that's why incivility can be such a problem. It can be, it can, it can suggest we're not actually members of a community, or it can suggest the fraying of the community itself. So Dr. Kibitzi, I'm, I'm trying to understand a little bit more and, sure, and may, maybe, um, maybe if you put it, could you put it more in terms of, um, more traditional Catholic terms of, of, of virtue in terms of goodness, patience, understanding, love. Is that what you're getting at? Because I was actually, um, I was actually listening to uh, a speaker just last week on a webinar and he was talking about reminding us that love is just as much participation in, you participate in love by receiving as well. So I think what I've seen in this latest increase in incivility is a lack of people listening and receiving other people's opinions. So maybe in terms of community, in terms of a Trinitarian sense of, of giving and receiving, is there a sense in which incivility is almost, it's, it's not loving because you're not receive, you're not willing to receive the other person's opinions or ideas? Yeah. Mary, look, that's a fantastic question. And there's a couple of things I want to signal. One is something that we should discuss. You use the language of increasing incivility. And I think it's worth discussing whether it's increasing and so on, right? That, that, so we'll just leave that to one side. So the question you, you, you began by saying, so what kind of more familiar virtues, what might we be thinking of? And then you talked a lot about love. So let's start with some more familiar virtues. And then let's talk a little bit about love, because quite honestly, I'm not sure what to make of love in politics, right? Because um, this is, you know, we are talking about a political realm, right? Uh, and that's really where the conversation is arising. So in terms of more standard virtues, absolutely patience, other regard, uh, you know, concern for the good of the other. Um, we might call this like a kind of a kind of friendship, but political friendship, right? It's the, it's the friendship you have citizens that is different from the friendship that you have with people that we typically call friends, right? You know, with whom you may have had 
certain kinds of shared experiences as members of different kinds of communities, you know, baseball team, uh, parish, um, having gone to school together and so on, right? These will form certain kinds of friendships, which I think we all would think of as different in important ways from political relationships or relationships we merely have with people as fellow citizens. But, but nonetheless, there, nonetheless, there is a kind of friendship that we think of as, as existing there. So you and your neighbor across the street may disagree on who to vote for, but you both, right, you, you get along with each other, you share certain kinds of concerns, you'll listen to her as she explains why she voted for, you know, the person you did not support. Um, and hopefully you're open to hearing her and trying to persuade her into, you know, thinking about um, you know, your candidate or whatever. There's virtues that we've talked about more uh, frequently in, in the Catholic Church, like solidarity, right? This is a term that has emerged, as we all know, uh, in the Catholic Church since the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, and that uh, Pope Francis has picked up in Fratelli Tutti. He's talked about uh, the, the, a kind of political love himself. So this goes to your point, Mary, that he sees there being a kind of loving that we can express uh, to all of our brothers and sisters in his language, um, even across the globe, right? Even recognizing there is a global community that we're called to understand ourselves as being a part of. And I see civility as being a kind of tissue that's connecting all of this from local communities to the global community you know, about which the Pope is speaking. Um, so there's there is a lot of familiar virtue language, I think, that civility contains or points to, and certainly this is very, quite amenable with what the popes have developed since, again, John Paul II talking about solidarity, um, and now Pope Francis talking about the kind of charity that we need to express towards each other in political life. I think it's also helpful to contrast civility with, with kind of the, I mean, I, I know we're going to talk later about this contrast with barbarism. But even, right. even what some of the some of the 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 voices that are denouncing civility kind of embrace a politics where where our fellows where we treat some of our fellow citizens as enemies, where, where, where we understand right. them to be as enemies. And that's the right. op, that's what you're saying is the opposite that to say that no, despite the deep disagreements I have with with my uh, literal next door neighbors, they're not my enemies. You know that, that they are. We belong to the same political community. So any of my engagement with politics does not mean I'm trying to destroy them or subjugate them to my. You know, to overwhelm them with with the power that my group can get or whatever it may be. Like I want. I want the good for them, you know, and and so and and so that's a different kind of mindset, I think. That's absolutely right. It's not. A, it, it's both. I want the good for them, right? And and I assume they want the good for me, right? So there's an assumption again of equal care, right? That they care for my good and I care for their good, and we want this for each other. And that by engaging in discussion with each other, we can we can hopefully advance um, towards some good. But it's also recognizing the conversation itself is a good, right? That this, that this interaction, which will be disagreement and it will be heated at times, right? It will be about grave issues, is already a good, right? It is a shared um, experience of being, um, being members of a community, being human beings who, as we know from our theological perspective, are broken by sin, right? Who have limited grasps of the good, you know, limited wisdom. Uh, but 
but nonetheless are in this community that nourishes them, informs them, the, you know, the, the, the communication um, that we engage in from one person to another is, is already a gift, right? It, it, it is itself a good. And, and to treat things um, like they're a war um, is really the lapse back into a mentality that is, you know, I mean, the language that Murray uses, the language, and it's not merely Murray, um, other people have used the same kind of language, is to lap back, in, back into a kind of barbarism, right? The sense that we actually can't communicate to each other. We're speaking in different languages, or we're speaking, presuming an unreasonability um, to my view or to their view, uh, depending upon, you know, how you're looking at it. One of the questions was uh, that, that, it kind of embedded in Mary's question that we we you said you wanted to push to the side. I want to bring up now is is about yeah. whether or not this is a is a new issue. I mean, you know, as you know, the philosophers and culture critics um, have known for decades that groups of Americans they they don't just disagree on on important issues. I mean, they inhabit almost completely different worlds, and and in that right. way, they don't they don't share a common language. Especially when you're talking about morals and and about moral issues, they're they're not even really speaking the same language. The, I, Saint Augustine was invoked at the inauguration with this idea of having common object, common loves. Uh, but many of these different groups within um, even within the United States don't have uh, don't share common objects of love, um, right. and that's been the case for a while now. Um, so. I mean, is is this new um, or is there something that's different? Do you see now from, you know, right. that wasn't the case, you know, back yeah. decades ago? Yeah. OK, so great question. Um, I think the, the answer really is yes or no. And I'm not trying to, you know, sit on a fence here. I, I think there's a there's an important way. It's no, this is not new. Uh, this even Augustine writing. Uh, and making this point about, you know, in, in what does a commonwealth truly exist is presupposing a discord, right? A kind of fundamental discord that he's experiencing, that Rome itself is experiencing. Uh, and, and, and I think, again, from a theological perspective, you'd say, well, that's, that's there since, you know, Cain and Abel, right? Um, that, right this, there's a fundamental fracture, right, of humanity expressing itself in opposing wills, right? I mean, that's essentially what this all boils down to. I have a sense of what is good for me. You have a sense of what is good for you. And because of sin, right, they, they, they oppose each other. And if, you know, Augustine's writing about this, I cite Murray, you know, writing in the 1950s, um, you know, Murray is noticing it then, right? So I think historians will say, this has been a, this is a, this is a feature of life in political community. It's why, as I say in, in the essay, Politics really is an enterprise of compromise, right? You're trying to bring these wills together to as much agreement as is possible to allow them peaceably to coexist and to enjoy, again, the fruits of living in community despite being these kinds of beings. Now, that's the no, it's not different side of it. There is a, yes, there are some differences that I think are important. I think one of the most important differences and you know, everybody has their little thing that they kind of focus on, for me, one of the most important differences is, is just the, the feature of media, right, um, or the function of media in all of this, from social media like Twitter uh, to media itself in all, in all of its forms, um, TV and so on. It's relentless. We cannot escape 
politics as a kind of drama. And that drama um, lives itself out in all of these different spaces. And because it does that, we become obsessive about politics. I think it's a feature of our age that, that we just find ourselves having a hard time escaping the political lens. And, uh, and that will make it seem as though there's, there's something different here. There's, a, there's an increased drama uh, in our attention that we have to pay, you know, that we that that sort of burdens us in our lives. So I, I think media is an importantly different feature, or its intensity is different than it was um, in the past. So there's a kind of yes or no uh, answer there. There are other aspects I think one could focus on too, but I, I'm a child of the you know late '60s and early '70s. You know, the '70s were marked by quite a bit of political rancor as well. Uh, so. I mean, I have a kind of yes or no position on this. Dr. Kapizzi, I think you make an excellent point about media and especially yes. social media where there's, as we were thinking about this topic, you know, I was thinking about freedom of speech and all the censorship that's going on, the right. Facebook and Twitters and all of that and and how that may impact our, our discourse and dialogue on political issues in the future and how it, it's already being impacted right now. Um, right. Because there is this sense in which people are perhaps social media is an opportunity. There's distance between your physical presence and your in-person confrontation or civil, incivil or civil dialogue. So the opportunity for incivility increases because there's more room to uh, express yourself very openly and, and with rancor. And so there's, it's almost like more people are, have are more free to speak openly without the, you know, without the need to be polite to somebody in person to their face, you know, so I'm curious if you, if you, you know, where freedom of speech, and maybe this, this delves into our next question about um, actions, in-person protests and actions, but, but freedom of speech, I think, is an element of this too. I mean, to what degree does freedom of speech play into this, and how will that work out in the future as some of these platforms are being possibly restricted or censored, perhaps divide into different platforms. So we have you know, all of these different areas where people are 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 discoursing, right? And does it decrease the amount of actual opportunities for people to um, to talk civilly together in open, yeah. free dialogue? Yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make like a, a two points following up on what you said, Mary, which I think is a great insight. The first is you're kind of pointing to like the bodily nature, right, of engaging other people um, that that we are freed from, in essence, right, or uh, tricked into thinking we're freed from by new forms of media. We, I think, we all know that if you have to, if you're sitting at a dinner table with somebody and having, a, you know, a, an argument, um, it's going to be a different kind of argument than if you're, we're on our computers and we're engaging each other uh, and. And all there are many different reasons why. One might be fear of it becoming physical, right, at the dinner table. Another might be being able to read um, the physical signs of somebody becoming frustrated or confused um, or pleased by points we're making, right, that are absent from um, social media engagement, right, or, or virtual engagement, right. So there's we're bodily beings, right? We believe, uh, and as bodily beings. Uh, that kind of physical present discourse, or even the sense of having to live together under the same roof or in the same town, right? Running into each other at the grocery store and so on. 
can impact the way we engage each other. And when that's absent, as it is in so much uh, virtual media now, right, it, 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 it can and it seems like it does lend to an almost an unaccountable um, raising of temperature and so on that is probably not healthy for um, communities. So that's that's one piece of uh, a response to what you said, Mary. The second is about the freedom of speech. The freedom of speech, for sure, is implicated. But I, th I think partly what you're describing is what we might call like the shaping of speech, right? And what we're seeing is that social media companies like Twitter or Facebook really are shapers of speech. And on the one hand, they give us the appearance of being spaces of free engagement, right? Where anybody can just kind of come in and, and go out at their own leisure and say more or less whatever they want to say. But what we know is also happening is that they are actually shaping speech, right? And there are obvious ways this is done by shutting down certain kinds of accounts, um, shutting down certain kinds of speech. But then there, there are the less obvious ways in which they are shaping speech, which go to the first point of your, of, of your comment, which is that by creating a virtual space, the speech, the speech itself is actually being shaped into a different kind of speech than it would be otherwise. And I don't think we know the implications of all of this yet, including implications on issues of free speech and, you know, to what extent they're actually um, become, you know, becoming impediments to free engagement of the sort that we think of as healthy um, to, for a community. It does seem to me that Twitter encourages a certain kind of argument because that that is... I mean, maybe it's extreme to put it to say it's nihilistic, but there is. But it's it, it just reminds me of I think it's in three rival versions of Moral Inquiry, where Alistair McIntyre notes that that Nietzsche's way of of arguing where he doesn't really make arguments that that the method of simply just kind of dropping little like proverbs kind of is, is actually part of. That that's actually that that form is is part of is is necessary to the kind of argument that he's making, and that when he goes into to writing more like a reasoned essay, he's actually kind of he's he's kind of betraying his own project in a way. Whereas, and and, and so I think like Twitter doesn't lend itself well to making a reasoned argument. It's just the when you have such a short, just short little bits, you're just kind of dropping little bombs usually. I mean, that's that's kind of normally what you're doing. Um, and so even even somebody who who wants to who maybe has good intentions about being engaged on Twitter, I think unless I'm, I'm and I'm talking about when they're tweeting about political stuff, not just sort of like sure. sharing what they're reading or making a comment sure. about something that's going on, but like. But really, like engaged in those sort of battles, the form of it actually actually um, changes the substance of it in in that sense. That like it, you can't you cannot be doing this kind of reasoned discourse on that medium. It's just not right. well. I don't know. Maybe right. that's too far. Look, I, I, look. I, I think it's unquestionable uh, that the the form is the you know is partly the substance right um you know the, we're, we're sounding like marshall McLuhan, right or at least you know kind of common understanding of you know that the medium is the message right that there is a way in which the form of the tweet is in fact bearing a great deal of the message of the thing and 
what, what, what I've noticed is that often what you do is you curate a, a group of followers, right? You do this by blocking and muting and, you know, and, and following and so on. Um, and, and then your impulse is to say something profound, right? And it's either profoundly funny or it's profoundly insightful. You know, the, the point is I now need to say something impactful. Uh, I, I need to seem, you know, wise or clever or whatever. And that shapes how you're engaging things. And of course, because the recipient is anticipating something of that sort, he or she is shaped in her response to it. So right, there, there's no doubt that this is a particular kind of conversation. Uh, and and, and we, I think we're all right to wonder, is it a healthy kind of conversation, one that is good for a community, or is it in fact damaging um, for a community, or is it you know, some mixture uh, of the two, um, and how do you sort through these, uh, these kinds of things? But on top of all of it, right, to, back to Mary's point, I, I think it's clearly shaping conversation. It's it's shaping our politics. And we should be thankful in a way that there's really only a small percentage of Americans that are on it, because you can see even though there's a small percentage of Americans that are on it, those conversations have an outsized influence on political conversation that's not even on Twitter, right, or other social media. I, uh, I kind of worry about where that, you know, what, if more Americans end up on this, you know, we're, or, uh, you know, conversing with each other in these ways, can it get worse? Can that political conversation actually uh, really deteriorate? Well, Early. you know, more and more people are on TikTok, so that I'll just replace it. So, you know, you never know. <laughs> TikTok is the one where they're just like dancing and singing or something. Is that right? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm not on TikTok, so I think yeah. sure, sure. <laughs> it can always get worse, um, right? Well, we can so, hope it can get better too. I mean, so we've been talking about social media and civility. Um, I also, I one of the things that I have often wondered about is when it comes to the questions of civility, would be like um, protests and boycotts, where because on the one hand, I mean, we're talking about free speech. I mean, obviously, we, we think of, of protests as being an exercise of free speech. And so in that way, kind of being something that's just really part of the fabric of American life in a lot of ways. I mean, it, you know, boycotts have obviously had good results, um, especially when we think about the civil rights movement. But I also wonder in terms of civility, if, if the idea of civility is that I see my neighbor or fellow citizen as a member of my community, that and then we try to reason together. A boycott, on the other hand, strikes me. It's an attempt to use. It's a. It's an attempt to coerce or kind of force the hand of of someone else. Um, and so I just kind of wonder, like you know, where where do protests and boycotts and these other types of actions, where do they fit in with with this idea of civility? Look, they they like any other forms of communication, let's put it that way, they, they are communicative forms in political contexts, can be judged in terms of their civility or their incivility, right? We just celebrated Martin Luther King Day. Um, and I'm sure, like many Americans, uh, you know, you guys both probably rewatched his I Have a Dream speech. Um, that, that was an act of civil discourse uh, and was towards a political goal, right? It had a political good in mind, the good towards which that 
act of civil discourse was ordered was a good of the political community, right? It was one that embraced a shared concept of the common good that aspired to be more inclusive of African-Americans. And we also know King engaged in protest, right? Um, and there were boycotts associated with the civil rights movement. These instruments were ordered towards the common good. And he, as we know, in the speech and at other times, strove to express that they needed to be nonviolent, right? They needed to be open, right? They needed to recognize that the good that, th that they were pursuing, right, a, a more inclusive common good could only be pursued or, or best be pursued by instruments that already were expressive of a more inclusive common good, love towards those who disagreed with him. Um, but, right, but, but power, right, or forcefulness that, you know, a kind of deep commitment to what was true about both human beings, right, that black or white, we are children of God, and also the political community. He refers, I think, into the speech in the speech to the promissory note, right? The promissory note that was made at the founding that was unfulfilled, right? This is an, it was an empty promissory note. We, we want this fulfilled. So it, you know, it, I mean, in a sense, it's a wonderful example of civil protest for the sake of the common good. Um, so I think civility still applies even for protests and boycotts and so on. They can be ordered towards the common good and actually advance us towards it um, and by their civility, or they cannot, um, and both by you know, having a wrong good or by being in, uncivil, right, and, and looking at other people in an exclusive way as enemies, as you know, obstacles to be overcome and so on. Well, and it strikes me in the in the your, what you were just now saying and and the examples you were giving is that in those protests and boycotts, we're still calling the other to to live out their principles in a way that they maybe hadn't thought of before. So it's right. kind of calling them to a kind of renewal that the that the other side didn't see at the time, but it's calling them to a kind of like a spiritual renewal. Um, and so in that sense, it, you're still actually, there is a kind of willing the good of the other, even if the other doesn't really recognize that. Um, and Absolutely. It, but yeah, but there's a, but there's a working with a, a set of common principles and, and um, kind of spiritual impulses. Um, so that seems to be a, dis, a, a distinction there than simply using the form of a protest or a boycott to like impose your will on someone else. I, I mean, that's a great way to put it, Aaron. It's he's not describing an imposition of will, right? He's describing a transformation of people, right? He, I, I think he, you know, towards the end of the speech, he talks about, you know, in Alabama or Mississippi, right, where the children of, you know, his or his children can be holding the hands of white, you know, grandchildren of, you know, of his peers, that this, right, this, this is entirely about transforming wills towards each other's good, right? And towards a shared good, not imposing one will on the other. This It was not power politics, right? Well, I wonder just to kind of close us out here. I mean, we always like to try to close out on something that's kind of, uh, some, that could try to be somewhat practical. Actually, this one may be one of the most 
practical things we've talked about, though we've kind of used a little bit of somewhat abstract language uh, points. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about this civility, um, people can be civil where they are. I mean, they don't have to necessarily. Right. They don't right. have to contact their congressperson or anything like that. Like, I mean, you, we can all like try to develop the kinds of virtues or, or, or kind of put practices into place to help us grow in these and in, in the virtue of good citizenship. So, I wonder if you could just to close us out here. You know, what can, what can Catholics do? How can Catholics promote civility in the United States? Uh, what are what are just some some practices that you think? Yeah, yeah. Most of us can do. Look, I think you already basically foreshadowed the response, um, Aaron. The, the wonderful thing about civility is it really is, right, it's about oneself. And the way for us to live better in commun community with others, um, particularly with others in political community, is by beginning to live better in our own communities. And you know, I think we all know the ways in which we fail here, right? And one of the striking things for me is how the church often um, will will make an analogy between life in political community and life in the family, right? And, and it talks often about how the family is the you know, sort of the most essential self for a flourishing human ecology, uh, you, you know, for a flourishing society. That's absolutely true, um, but it's not a glamorized conception of the family, right? Uh, I think most of us know that probably some of our most difficult conversations or relationships are the ones that are most intimate. To us, and it's in fact because of their intimacy that they they can be quite difficult. So if you think, how can I be more civil? Um, how can I live better in political community? It's by concretely living better, even in your family, right? Beginning to try to think of routes to overcome difficulties in one's own life, and just begin to expand that out. Parish life, right? I, I don't know about you guys, but. You know, on the one hand, the parish is a wonderful resource um, and, and a source of nourishment for our family. On the other hand, it's often where you find yourself having oddly peaked conversations with people or difficult relationships with people. And again, this is exactly where um, we can be practicing these virtues of patience, right, of humility, of um, open, like generous listening to others and so on that will become the habits that are, you know, translate you know, perfectly well into life in political community that will be hopefully more civil. Share with us where, just an example of where you think Christ in the gospel, I mean, I can think of one or two, but where would he demonstrate civility in, in, in difficult moments? Yeah, and so to, to me, what comes to mind is not even sort of an instance, but just um, as, again, Pope Francis points out all the time, that Christ is often challenging social norms for the sake of the community, for the sake of the social, by engaging with people that were, were seen as outside of the community, right, or on the periphery of the community. So what he, you know, to, to respond to your question, what he's doing, I think, is he's puncturing settled conceptions of what one's community, in fact, is by saying, no, 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 this person over here who we identify as outside of it because of her, her actions, because of um, what tribe she's a member of, right, because of her status or his status um, in the community, um, it is, in fact, part of our community. 
and we are a better community and we are better individually when we recognize that about these people. And he does it never like, or, you know, in an uncivil way, right? It's just by bringing to them either the truth itself, right, in word, um, bringing healing to them, um, or bringing physical sustenance, right, the community itself out to them. So I think it's all over the place uh, in the Gospels. And, it, you know, it's a great question, you know, or a reminder for us to look through Scripture itself and see if it if it's not, in fact, bearing out this concept that we are called always to question the way we settle into conceptions of who our community is and who it excludes uh, and how, in fact, we're called to bring some of these people in with us. Uh, and that will require postures and habits that we've, we've been talking about today. Well, Dr. Capizzi, uh, I think that that's probably a good place to end. It's always good to end with with the gospel. So I think we'll go ahead and close it out there. But um, I did want to give you a chance just if you have any final thoughts, any anything that that um, you wanted to to share that we didn't tee you up for. Well, just to look, another thing to remind ourselves of is that this this is not a partisan thing. Right. Um, that, you know, that talking about civility uh, is not pointing a finger, wagging a finger at this or that camp. It really is above or below, depending upon how you want to think about it, questions of partisanship. Uh, it, it's, it's, again, it's about oneself and the community of what, you know, which one is a part, not about, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, conservatives versus progressives. Uh, it, it, we're all equally guilty uh, in, in many respects, um, and we're all equally called to be better. Thank you so much. Thank you for your service to the church. Uh, this has been a pleasure to talk with you today. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Mary. My pleasure. Yeah, to be thank here you, with you guys. so much, Dr. Capizzi. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.